Genesis 35 is our scripture this morning, the whole thing. God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called his name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Pedan Aram and said to and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went, in, went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob, of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. 
and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Well, as we have been walking through the book of Genesis, it's been a wonderful new experience in some ways for me. There have been challenges to it, but it has rung again and again of the wonderful truth of the covenant of God's grace, and it has been impactful to me. I hope it has for you. But in the last several chapters, I have to admit As I have been reflecting on Jacob's life, I have found a reaction in my own heart that I did not anticipate and uh, actually kind of um, annoyed, but I've been bothered by Jacob's antics. Some of his goings on didn't sit right with me. Something in me, I found, has been agitated by the fact that Jacob could just keep weaseling his way out of consequences. And in his sins and failures, it just seems he doesn't have to hold up to his responsibilities. If you think through some of Jacob's background, you look at the life and his interaction with Esau, his brother. In Genesis 27, we receive... Uh, we receive the view of his brother that he deceives him. He goes to his brother, deceives him, and he robs him of the paternal blessing, the birthright. Both are lifelong lessons. In verse 36, we read that Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. You look back at his interaction with Laban, his father-in-law. Jacob had successfully, in verse 31, completed growing the flocks. But then he took his family, he hit the road, he escapes Laban, and Laban finally says to him, why did you flee secretly and trick me? Again, characteristic of Jacob. And finally, last week, we heard about Dinah, his daughter, Chapter 34, absent is Jacob's defense of her actions to bring justice for her her humiliation by Hamar. And his inaction is cruel and it's wrong. With Esau and Laban, he uses conniving, deceiving, and trickery. But with Dinah, he fails to respond to her malicious sin, the sin committed against her. So, in all of that, as I reflect on that, the lingering, nagging question that I've been wrestling with is this. Why does God continue to extend such grace to Jacob? After all he's done, Jacob hasn't earned God's blessing. Jacob doesn't deserve God's blessing. Doesn't God see what Jacob's done? How can God make such amazing covenant promises? I don't understand. And it came to a point where I thought, isn't there something wrong? And then the thought came to me, Chris, you'll never understand the grace of God to Jacob 
until you understand that there's plenty of Jacob's character in you. And then, in response to that, surrender to the truth again and again and again that a relationship with God is all of grace. And we have that relationship through the gift of faith. Never because we deserve it. Well, sadly, I quickly dismissed that thought as a distraction. (laughs) But God is faithful and persistent, as we shall see. And the more that I looked at the life of Jacob, I continued to see strains of Jacob's sinfulness in my own life. And what's more, my need for God's grace. Jacob's turning point time and time again was his surrender to the trust in the promises of God. Let me say that again. Jacob's turning point time and time again was his surrender to the trust in the promises of God. And so I believe that we have here before us in chapter 35 a lesson that this scripture teaches and it's this. Worshiping the God of promise requires surrendering to the God of grace. Let me say that again. Worshiping the God of promise requires surrendering to the God of grace. Here is another part of scripture. When God appears, and I think this delights God, he presents God-sized truth to unworthy recipients. God-sized truth to unworthy recipients. So that those individuals walk away changed. Think of Abraham. Think of Jacob. Think of Moses. Think of Paul. Think of John on the island of Patmos. God presents God-sized truth. He does that so that his name, his glory, his character might be on display. Never ours. He does it that he and he alone might receive the glory. Here in other parts of scripture, we're given a glimpse of God's power, God's grace, God's goodness. Aren't you glad that Jesus said that it's the sick that need a physician? A sick that need a physician, not those who are well. And that he's come to call the sinner to repentance, not the righteous. Jacob brings no medals to this story that somehow he deserved or merited God's appearance, but God appears. And in fact, Jacob does just the opposite. In many ways, humanly speaking, Jacob is deserving of correction and punishment. Yet, thanks be to God, he has, God has, other plans for Jacob. In our text today, God appears twice to Jacob. Because of it, Jacob returns to Bethel. And in doing so, we receive the view of God's amazing Character, And I'd like to look at that in three different ways. As we look at this, I believe 
as we see the character of God. And my prayer and my hope is that we will be compelled to worship. Point one, Jacob returns, Jacob's return, sorry, displays the persistent grace of God, verses one through seven. Jacob's return displays the persistent grace of God. Recall that the appearing of God to Jacob in chapter 35 is not the first time God came to him, nor is it the first time that he directed him to go up to Bethel and to dwell there and to worship and to keep his vow. Back in 28, God appeared to Jacob in a dream, if you'll remember the dream, where Jacob saw a ladder extending to heaven to earth, from heaven to earth, and Jacob knew that he was in the presence of God. God visited him, God gave him a God-sized promise, and response, Jacob made a vow to follow and worship the Lord. In Genesis 28, we read, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, will keep me, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set out for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all of you, and I will give to you a tenth. And then in 31.13, he says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise and go to this land and return to the land of your kindred. God tells Jacob to go to Bethel. God had said, it's time to go. But Jacob, Mr. I'm going to do it myself, Mr. Deceiver decides to go to Shechem. And as you know from chapter 34, when he goes to Shechem, the fiasco with Dinah occurs. So God patiently and persistently comes again here in 35. And he says, arise, go to Bethel. And this time, in response to God, Jacob goes. Jacob keeps his vow. If you will, he finally surrenders. He does what God said. His response to follow is only a result of God's persistent patience his result to follow is only because God keeps coming to him. God is at work in Jacob bringing his covenant promises to pass. And he graciously persists in pursuing Jacob. He leads him in the right response. Some of you know that I'm a high school chemistry teacher. Recently, while I was teaching a class, I gave directions to the class about a specific assignment. I repeated it twice, wrote it on the board, put it on their computer assignments, and immediately after explaining it, I had two students who said to me, what are we supposed to do? And as my blood pressure began to rise and words began to form in my mouth that I would have regretted saying, the thought came to me, recall how many times God has had to remind me of what I'm supposed to be doing in a like manner again and again and again reminds me when I don't listen. 
And with that thought, I was able to at least semi-patiently rehearse the directions again. Aren't you glad that God is persistent? Aren't you glad that he is patient? Maybe there's something that he's after in you. Maybe God's trying to get your attention. Maybe, for example, it's like Brian shared. And God's after something in your heart. God's grace is persistent. He doesn't come to you and say, oh, finally, will you get it? He comes again and again and again. Jacob had gone through what seems to be a pretty traumatic experience with his brother. Recall in 27, chapter 27, we read about his interaction with Esau. It says Esau hated Jacob. Oh, really? Was it hate? And then it says he intended to kill him. Jacob was on the run. In chapter 28, God appears to Jacob in a dream, promises protection. Jacob makes a vow. If you save me, I will follow. You ever made one of those? I have. Then in verse 33, we read, interestingly, and this is something that impacted me, when Jacob met Esau again, and I know we've preached on this, I was overcome by the fact that Esau ran to meet him. And when Esau met him, he embraced him and he kissed him. What a picture of grace. What a picture of grace. God appears to Jacob to remind him of his grace. And more than that, his plan and promises. Folks, God did that during Jacob's time of distress. Jacob had a time where he thought his life might end. And God came to him. Just like Jacob, it's often during our times of distress. It's often during those times of difficulties and, in some cases, deepest humiliation that we see God's character the greatest it's those times when we sometimes are affected most significantly. God never wastes a second of our difficulties. He never skips a beat. Nothing takes place outside of his plan. God's got a purpose. Nor does God ever leave us during those times as we see Jacob, God appeared to Jacob. God came to Jacob. But Jacob's words were, God has always been with me. And he comes to comfort him. C.H. Spurgeon said it this way, The God of Bethel is a God who concerns himself with the things of the earth. He's not a God who shuts himself up in heaven. He's a God who has a ladder between heaven and earth. Psalm 18 says this, In my distress, I called to the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him even to his ears. 
I was taken back by that scripture. Sometimes, folks, we need to cry out to God. Sometimes we just need to get on our knees and cry out. The idea is not just being very formal and being reserved. Sometimes we need to be very transparent with the Lord where we bow our hearts and we simply cry out. When's the last time you've done that? Where for you it becomes a vocal statement, Lord, I need you. If you've never done that, it's impacting. You cry out to the Lord. And what is so impacting about that scripture to me is not that we cry out and, as one section said, shout to the Lord. It's that his prayers came to the Lord during his distress and they came to the very face, as it says, to the ears of God. Our cries come very close to God and he takes them and he hears them. We have a God who knows We have a God who cares, and he cares for us in our distress. And before we leave the section, one more demonstration of God's caring grace. If you'll look down at verse 5. God preserves Jacob yet again when he travels through hostile area of Shechem. Recall in 34, again, there were people who were hurting. They had gone in, and the sons of Jacob had plundered the city in retaliation for the humiliation of Dinah. There were people in the area that wanted to kill him. And verse 5 said, As they journeyed, a terror fell from God upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Again, Jacob in some ways was deserving of the punishment. Yet in spite of that, God guides, God provides, God protects. And God takes him to the land of promise. I believe it's a picture of grace. It's a picture of grace. Point number two. God promises Jacob, God's promises to Jacob teach us of the sovereign power of God. Verses 9 through 13. When God appears to Jacob for the first time, he reminds him of his vow. God's protection. God's promise. When he appears to him in verse 9, he declares the promise. And when he talks to Jacob, he changes his name. Verse 10 says, And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So his name became Israel. Jacob meant deceiver, supplanter, cheater. And uh, according to his brother, he lived up to his name. I love how Esau says that. Verse 36 of chapter 27, he says, that is rightly his name, cheater. But then Jacob meets God. And God declares a new name. Israel. One who strives. That is, one who strives for God. Jacob's a sinner, but his sins are not going to have the final word. God's forming a new future and a destiny for Jacob. And Jacob's sin 
will not keep him for, from entering the promise of God. Yes, he's going to face consequences for his dealings, but God is the one who directs the outcomes and writes the final chapter of Jacob's life. Only sovereign power can do that. God has the power to change a heart. God has the power to change character. If you're here today and you say, I need to be changed, there's one who can do that. There's one who's very dedicated and able. And that's God. And he doesn't do it so you receive the glory. He does it for his. And he's at work among us. God can not only change character, but God can change the future. God writes the future. God sovereignly puts our future together. He orchestrates it. I like how it says here in this section, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, God sufficient, God the powerful one. I love how that falls right before all of this amazing promise to give him kings and lands. Only a mighty God can do that. God promises Jacob the nations. God promises that kings will come from him. One king in particular. God looks down the corridor of time and God says, I'm writing the future. And yet apart from God's mighty sovereign hand, that won't happen. Today we see that the truth of what God promised to Jacob has come to us. Kings did come, and of course, our king of kings. We see the promises of God partially fulfilled today, but one day we will see him face to face. He gives us that promise. Point number three, Jacob's worship demonstrates the right response to God's grace. For Jacob, responding to God's appearing required acknowledging the truth of who had appeared. It also required a change in allegiance. Let me say that again. Responding to God's appearing required acknowledging the truth of who has appeared. It also required changing his allegiance. Who he would follow. Who he would trust. And who he would worship. Jacob, having been reminded of who it was that came to him and how this God protected him in his distress and no doubt remembering the vow that he made to God responded by obeying and surrendering and worship. When God appears to Jacob, he presented the truth of who he was and he called him to respond. And that response meant specific things. When God appeared to Jacob, he presented who he was and he called him to respond and that meant certain specific things. It's no different for us today. If God has made himself known to you in the person of Jesus Christ, and by the way, there's no other God, no other true and living God, then you too are called to respond and worship 
in a specific way. And that worship means certain things. First thing that it means is that you acknowledge that God has appeared in Christ. Jacob declared that God not only appeared, but was always with him. It's the same for us. God has come in the person of Christ. And as we were worshiping, I thought, he not only has come in the person of Christ, but as he has promised, as we are gathered, just to remind us, he is here by his spirit. He is at work now. We have before us the mighty God, the God who appeared to Abraham, the God who appeared to Isaac, the God who appeared to Jacob, the God who has been there. He is here now by his spirit. He's walking among the aisles by his spirit. He knows what's going on in our minds and hearts. He knows our needs. He knows what sins we're wrestling with. He knows what we need. If you are going to respond properly, we need to acknowledge who is among us. And secondly, you recognize that by grace, he's calling you to follow, to give up your own ways, to follow his way. One of the ways that comes out in this text following is burying idols. We read in the text that they buried the idols, that Jacob took them and buried them. In our day and age today, I don't see, at least in our culture, a lot of things put out that we worship in the sense of gods and so forth. You go to some other areas, and I've seen them, where there are pictures and statues regularly. It's growing in our culture. But that doesn't mean we don't have idols. Idols come out of our hearts. So let me ask, are there things in your heart that you run to for your security? Are there things that you go to, that you hold on to, that give you identity, that give you purpose, that give you reason? Are you holding on to vengeance? Are you holding on to fear? Are you holding on to unforgiveness? Perhaps personal pleasure? Perhaps comfort? As Brian mentioned, racism? Perhaps resentment? Any of these, if they are permitted to stay in our heart, will be a force that obstructs our worship of God. Friends, our response is no different than Jacob's. We're called to bury those again and again and again and in their place, place fresh trust and hope in God that he will help us. Worshiping the God of promise means that we trust his grace. So as we look at the life of Jacob, it's clear. Twists and turns are going to come. Difficulties are going to come. 
distresses are going to come. Heartaches and troubles are going to come. We don't need Jacob's story to tell us that. Jacob was getting ready to go through the death of his wife, the death of his father, the tragic sin of his son, Reuben. In a group this size, there is the probability that there are some here who do not know Christ. If that is you, if you have yet to encounter the life-changing grace of God in Jesus Christ, um, there's a major storm, unless you find Christ, that is promised to come your way. If you're here and you're not a believer, I would ask you to please hear this carefully. The God which the Bible speaks about describes God as disposed to deal with his people in grace. It makes no such claim for those who are not surrendered to him. In fact, it says that those who do not follow and do not worship are under wrath. But it also says that the truth of life is found and can be found in the person of Christ, not in a methodology, not in a philosophy, but in a person. And of course, that person is Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, he came as a man. He came to declare that God had made a way for man to know God. And that was through surrender and faith and trust in Christ. God gave Jacob the promise that in the midst of all his difficulties, he had a mighty God, one who would keep and preserve him. God's given us that same promise. God is with us. I pray that you can see the banner over God's work is a covenant of grace. As Christians, we have the responsibility to respond. We have the responsibility to acknowledge God has saved me. God's power has kept me. And we have responsibility to respond in worship. Whether you're facing deep distress or difficulty, God is here. Since Christ has appeared, God is present. When God is present, he promised us to provide all we need. Let's pray. Father, thank you that our hope and our trust is solid and secure. For our hope and trust is in you. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us by your spirit. Thank you as your children that you deal with us in grace. Father, help us to rightly worship. Help us to rightly respond. Help us rightly to live a lifestyle of worship that you would be glorified, that your name would be made great, and that we would be changed more and more into the image of Christ. For his name's sake we pray. Amen.